0: Radio, hello there, my name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to episode two of Real People. Today we are joined by and Anantula impact strategist, designer, and blogger at humanomics.co. Suet is Partner Business Models, Inc., Industry Fellow at the University of South Australia and father to two young children. So it works across sectors such as families, child protection, domestic violence, ageing, arts and culture, education, Indigenous issues, digital technology, the environment, food and nutrition. In today's talk, we go back to Suet's boyhood growing up in India with its 150 languages and wide cultural Diversity, and how his fascination about the big wide world and with a voracious love of reading The Hardy Boys and much more has informed his ever curiosity with what makes people tick and what is required to drive change. Seward and I discuss cultural differences between India and Australia that are likely holding the level of innovation and prosperity of Australia back. We travel down many interesting roads, pick up a few great books along the way, learn why coding is as important as English, reflect on the trend towards businesses seeking social good and hear why writing is as important as reading in understanding the world and its people. Thank you for tuning in. Real People is a podcast produced by Square Holes and hosted by me. Building on my 25 years conducting research interviews with average and not so average people, rich, poor, old, young, content, and vulnerable, to understand what they believe and how they behave, as well as interviews with key leaders such as innovators, politicians, and experts. On the podcast, I interview academics, researchers, leading thinkers, real people, interesting people, and otherwise. It is great. To step over the trepidation and procrastination that comes with anything new. And since launching episode one with Martin Reed, we have been chuffed with a positive response. We have some great interviews lined up already with neurologists to explorers. Let's not waste a moment on with the show.
1: Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay now, from the beginning.
0: Welcome, Stuart. Thank you very much for, for joining me today. Uh, question: I'll start with is what what's what has got you to where you are today? A few moments in your life that have got you to the person you are.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, great to be part of this conversation. Um, you know, growing up, it never made sense the kind of decisions I've made, and you know, it's always not easy to understand what 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 you do at one step at a time that brings you back here. But I was listening to this um, uh, uh, presentation by Steve Jobs. He was giving this commencement speech. And if you remember, it's a very famous commencement speech. Um, And he talks about there, about many things. But one, he says that he could only understand his life backwards. And he gives an example of how um, he kind of went to his uh, bachelor's degree course and he went to a course on calligraphy because he got bored. And then he remembered that calligraphy course and then... Uh, brought fonts to Mac and then Windows copied fonts from Mac and all the world Mm. has good fonts because he went to his calligraphy course. But when you did the calligraphy course, it never made sense. So in the same way, when I look back at my life, uh, you know, a lot of decisions I made at that time didn't make sense. But when I look back now, it made a lot of sense. So I I can remember
0: seeing that. I've I've seen that video. I guess that question kind of comes from that kind of same kind of Yeah. So
2: for me, uh, about five or six years back, it really crystallized who I was and what I was doing, yeah. uh, and I started calling it humanomics. Yeah. And the idea was. But where did
0: that you start? Let's go. Let's let's go way back. So way where, back. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where, where were you born? What what, uh, like, what, were so, you, what were you like as a
2: kid? Sure, sure. Uh, so I was born in Hyderabad. Hyderabad is a city in South India. Um, when I was born. It what was, was it like? It was about a. Million or less people. Yeah, it's okay. ten million now. So yeah. just give you a sense of yeah. like, it was a very coastal know inner... It was a it was a twin city. So it was a very interesting city where uh, so Secunderabad was all uh, cantonment. So a lot of military, uh, a lot of laid back. Hyderabad was um, was a bit of a different culture. More business. Um, there was this uh, uh, river in the middle that separated both, but they were together. Yeah. And we also had the old city. The old city was the old uh, four hundred years back. The Muslim rulers of the state. Yeah. So that had a entirely different culture. So it was, a, it, it was So I grew up in a fairly multicultural for India, yeah. uh, where we could speak two three languages at the same time, understand all the three languages, yeah. be with um, any kind of you know background. So having. Friends who are Christians, Muslims, Hindus. It was just like part of how you grew up because of the way the city was. Yeah. Um, And if you do understand India, which is very vast, and I think that the best way I can explain India is, think of India as the European Union. Yeah, yeah. But the Indian Union, so each state is like a different country.
0: Right, okay. Okay,
2: so with different language, different uh, script of the language, different culture. So we celebrate all festivals from all states. In Hyderabad, right. so I grew up in a very, uh, very strong understanding of how the whole country was, but not really understanding till I grew up. At that time, it was just fun, so yeah. I just grew up having fun. So a strong cultural, understanding, yeah, a strong you say? a right? cultural yes. understanding, uh, not just in my language and my city, but actually having a um, larger understanding of the country. Um, and we had this, and 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 this is fun, funny for a lot of people who are born now, but. Um, we never had a we never had a landline phone for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so I think my father told me that they had to use influence and get it after seven years of waiting. Um, so it was a pretty interesting moment when uh, I had a landline at home. Yeah. Because it was not. So common. your father had to use father, influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it took six years to seven yeah, yeah. years. So it was not yeah. a small thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to watch in black and white TV. Um, so I I actually. I actually grew up through from there till even. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. not that old. You can clearly remember it. Quite I clearly remember yeah. because because there was this moment where people used to come home to call or take a phone call.
3: Yeah, it was a pretty yeah, big yeah. deal
2: to you know have a phone in the house. Yeah. So I always remember that I was like maybe yeah. four or five at the time. So it was a pretty yeah. important context yeah. for me that okay the phone is special.
0: Yeah. Were you studious? Were you a rebel? Were you <laughs> so curious? I think was,
2: I was I was curious and studious. And maybe around the seven, um, I it was year seven or year eight, my cousin really got me into reading. I mm. used to never read yeah. till then, and that changed my life.
0: Reading what? Like, what did you Just read? Just novels, like yeah. you, know,
2: you know, Hardy Hardy Boys or yeah, you know, okay. silly stuff. But yeah. but stuff that kind of actually got me into reading. Um, and my mother tells me that I was always a loner, like in the sense that I used to always play with toys on my own, create my own stories. Mm. Uh, but the reading kind of really got me, helped me become myself, I guess, because I was still on my own a bit. But I was able to live in the dreams of the writer, I guess. So mm-hmm. I, I became a very avid reader. And to give you context, I think this is very important because I used. We never had public libraries. So when I came to Australia, it was like mind blowing to yeah. see public libraries. I used to go to this sh- library, which was like um, extremely small. So you know, uh, just a sofa size build uh, box. And This guy used to give us, uh, you know, rent us books at a very low cost, and that's how yeah. I started reading. Like my whole reading was from in this box. So <laughs> whatever that guy could pick was, you know, Asterix and obliques was a big, yeah, bit yeah. famous for me. But all of those things came from, you know, reading from that box. So that was a very Im- important box in my life. Mm. Yeah.
0: So what did reading, what, what, looking back, what did reading do to to make you who you are today?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so, so reading gave me um, a global understanding. Sitting in a in a city, without, as you can imagine, at that time we had black and white and a bit of color TV. Cable TV came much later. Mm. Uh, internet was not a big deal when I grew up. So, so reading was my my view of the world. You know, my view of the world was reading. And uh, we had the British High Commission, uh, which had an amazing library in Hyderabad. So, when I was studying my bachelor's, I. <laughs> I, I started in Drucker, okay, Peter Drucker, yeah. and, and that was 96, 97, 98. So uh, Drucker has been the biggest influence in my life, if anything. Hmm. But that ability to read Drucker was because of the British High Commission's library. Um, and that stayed with me all my life. So basically who I am, you can go back and trace to all the many books I've read. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, So, so yeah. if you
0: look at you as a child, you now, what are sort of three steps in between you go that you kind of you could use now as sort of stepping stones? Stepping to say stones, yeah,
2: nice one. Um, I think when I was year eight, year eight uh, and year, going to year nine, um, we had houses like in schools. My teacher called me up and said, you should stand up for vice captain. Hmm. I'm like, now I'm not a vice captain. Yeah. And she said, no, you should. And I became a vice captain and a captain. And that changed my life. I realized that I could be a leader. Yeah, okay. I, never, I never could realize till that moment. Um, and then, uh, I, I made choices about the kind of education I wanted when I didn't get, I totally changed my career, which I don't know if it was right or wrong, but that uh, I went from engineering to business.
0: So you started off as an engineer, you <laughs> I, studied engineering. I uni. started my ma-
2: math, physics, chemistry, Wanted to get into the top engineering colleges. Yeah. It's too hard to get in. And then I, I got so pissed off. I didn't want to go to a kind of a medium level engineering college so yeah. I have shifted entirely to business. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So to, that that shift was significant yeah. I think in my life.
0: So you plan through uni was to go and become an engineer yeah. and then yeah. you went ship click, so click like this. Pivoted, yeah, pivoted. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know we didn't know a word called pivoted right mm-hmm. at that time but yeah, I pivoted. And then I wa- went into financial services um working for ADP uh Wilco which was a US based 8 billion dollar company. That really got me bored after four years. And I started uh, (laughs) working with a guy called Rajesh um, in rural India and how to develop rural India. That was another pivotal moment where I went with Rajesh and Atanu, who was an economist. Those two guys had such a significant um, impact in my life that pretty much whatever I'm doing now, I can trace back to that one year with them.
0: Yeah, okay. So 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 you're going from India to Australia. Yes. when, When did that occur?
2: So about... 2002, 2003, I started getting bored with my work in ADP. Yes. So I found this guy, Rajesh, who made $100 million in the dot-com boom. Um, and he was writing a blog. So I can imagine 2002, 2003, blog was pretty yeah, pretty yeah, up there. Yeah. Um, so I joined him on an idea to create called Disha. So Ra- At- Atanu came up with the idea and Rajesh was funding it to think about how do we create rural economic development okay I did that with them for a year I really tried to create a for-profit per, for for-purpose business we right. don't have social enterprise as a word, yeah, yeah. okay. but that that we failed but that gave me a lot of insight into what I want to do which means I didn't want to go back after that to my previous job hmm. so Atanu and I was we were just discussing and we looked at uh, Spain Canada US and Australia to do my studies uh, further studies in MBA yeah. and and if, interestingly i uh, uh, Adelaide, uh, Australia was the best country to come as a as a married. I was already married by then, as a couple. Yeah, it was the most uh, yeah open country to. Uh, Canada was pretty good, but my wife didn't want to go to the cold. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then we picked Adelaide because I wanted to go to a small city from Bombay, and that's it. And then I was in Australia. Yeah,
0: okay. Did you come to Adelaide first? I, was, or? I came to Adelaide first. Yeah, okay. with the
2: idea of going away in two years. Okay,
0: so. do you see um, oh you do do you see cultural differences between australia and india and you 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 do work between don't you go back to I, india i do and, i do yeah yeah, yeah. I,
2: i've been in- so what are the
0: major cultural differences between um, australia and india so
2: let's start with what's common right yeah. english so you know english is actually the uniting language of the country yeah. Because, you know, if imagine Europe, right? I can't go from Italy to Germany and speak Italian or German. So mm-hmm. English becomes a common yeah. language. Same in India. Uh, Commonwealth, yeah. you know, democracy, cricket. Yeah. Um, uh, so all of these are actually very common. But then the uncommon, the stuff that is actually starkly different, right, is Australia is a very strongly, I would say, very well-designed and developed country, you know, yeah. compared to, you know, the 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 challenge of India, so India is uh, culturally different in many ways in terms of the uh, the differences of how people live and uh, because of the complexity of the languages and the culture it's always multicultural and and Australia is multicultural. Of the regions and, yes. regions have
0: different dialects. Is that right? No, no, no. no? Different no? languages. Different languages. Yeah. Okay.
2: So there's about twenty eight official languages. Right. Okay. Okay, and about two thousand dialects. Okay. So we're talking about a significant diversity here. Yeah. That is that is beyond uh, what we imagine or understand or what's possible. But again, if you think about it, Australia has 200 plus uh, people from 200 plus nations. Yeah. So we have a significant diversity. But I, I guess the diversity never came through for me when I came here. Okay. It came out as a much more singular English country. Yeah. Um, the other big difference for me is India is going global thinking rapidly about what its place to be in the last 15 years is the most dramatic change I've seen in my life, Australia is still struggling to find its role in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, you know, if you think about lots of measures, Australia is way ahead of India. I feel uh, Australia as a country, we don't understand enough what our place and the role is.
0: So we're still very domestic focused? is that Definitely right?
2: domestic yeah. focused, but, um, but not even understanding that we're actually part of Asia. <laughs> Right. right. So when I came to this country, it's slowly changing. We s- connect so much to Europe and America, but actually we are in Asia. You mm. know, we, are, we we our closest neighbors are Asians, yeah. and and there's I feel there's a lack of lack of at a at a high level understanding that we are actually an Asian, con- Asian part of Asia yeah, yeah. rather than part of uh, part of Europe or uh, even though we have a heritage from that, which is no questions about it. But actually understanding where we are actually is important in that context. Yeah.
0: So why does why do you feel that India uh, is more globally focused? What's, what culturally makes India more globally focused? I think
2: Indians are by nature outside focus. So um, I'll give you an example. My, my father never went to the U.S. He would know more about the U.S. than most Americans. Okay. okay? Yeah. Um, natural Geographic was a was a magazine that I grew up with. Reader's Digest was a thing that we read every month. There was this strong sense of understanding the world and saying, so if you look at the news, let's take news channels, right? Seven news, nine news here, or the news that you get in India, huge difference. Mm. There's a global news conversation that happens in India that doesn't happen
3: here. Right. Okay.
2: So there's a cultural uh, feel of, there's a natural Indians understand where they are in the world. I'm not saying all Australians are like, right? Of course, there are Australians who understand the world, but in general, you can see that there's a lack of understanding of what another country is. Right. Uh, only the countries that we are familiar with, mm. in general, not in the world uh, unless you have traveled or you've got a friend or you've come from there. Um, the second thing, I guess, is that India, if you go back in history, was uh, one of the biggest economies in the world. Yeah. So it was. So there was a decline, and it's coming back. So it's trying to come back to that space. I guess Australia grew f- from. Uh, nothing almost to where it is. So I think people are forgetting the good stuff of how Australia has become this. So, so India is a very positive conversation. I hear more negativity in Australia lately than I ever heard. Okay. So if you look at the normal papers, if you look like at the news, um, and you compare to what you would talk to people in India, there's a lot more positive conversations in India with all the problems, with all the good stuff we have. There's a more negative conversation yeah. in Australia. Yeah.
0: So is, uh, is it harder? To live in India than Australia,
2: I think it's just cultural. Sorry, it's just cultural, right? Like what road. you what you're used to. Yeah, okay. A uh, lot of Indians I know have come here, struggle to live here mm. because it's too slow. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah. so uh, whereas if Australians go there, they may struggle because yeah. it's like what the hell? there's chaos here. So I think it's very it's 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 how you grew up in. So it's a very, it's not a one to one comparison. Yeah. Okay. But if you go there, you have to live very differently than you mm. would live here. I was I guess. wondering
0: whether in in countries like Australia, there's a safety net that if you maybe don't work hard to conquer the world, you'll still be okay. And where maybe in India, if you don't work hard, maybe there's not as much of a safety net. Is there's that, no safety there's net. There's no safety net. Yeah, well that's yeah, right. Correct. Does, so that's, does, that, does that create a cultural desire to prosper or
2: Yeah, struggle? that's an that's interesting way to look at it. I think there are two aspects. Um, actually, people don't expect the safety net. They so don't expect the safety net. Yeah, okay. only if you're in government jobs and some in the defense space, you get that. That's a very small percentage. Uh, most people don't think of the government giving a safety net. That's not part of the conversation, which which actually means that they're, they're planning for the future. So mm-hmm. they understand that I have to have a plan for my future or else I can't live. So that's already yeah, part okay. of it. The second thing is Indians definitely consider themselves that they're not at where they are. There's a lot of hunger to grow, mm-hmm. to become bigger, to to, to achieve things because they know they're not where they are, I guess here uh, even if you do a basic job, you still get a decent salary. I think people complain here when they have a car and a TV and a cell phone and a decent house, and then we say we don't have a good life. so it's kind of a uh, a different different level of expectations of what is base you know good and what is base good in that country. Mm. Uh, so people there it's not it's not even about the safety net. it's just like you know there's a hunger to become better. And grow, yeah, okay. and just almost take the last two, three hundred years away from what we have not achieved, and try to achieve it in fifty years or something, right? right so there is that actually. kind of yeah. uh, a rapid uh, way of achieving things. It's similar to where China, China, Chinese are thinking, and China is, I guess, where we are. Right? We've gone to a stage where um, where we are trying to kind of improve at the margins some of these things. Hmm. And the second thing is we are getting more stronger in building a stronger safety net. So if you think about the conversations here it's uh Australia was not built on safety net. Australia as a country was built on uh, people's ability to try something, take a risk, yeah. to you know, to to ta- to take something which was nothing and create a beautiful country like ours. So uh, Australia was never built on safety net. So this idea that actually we need safety net more to solve our problems may may, may actually take us backwards is is my view seeing what is uh, what else is happening yeah, yeah, in the world. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, any other key differences, similarities between uh, Australia and Technology,
2: technology. So yes, I grew up when there was no cell, phone, no, no there was hard to get a, a phone in your home, but now India has a, a billion mobile phones, yeah. um, and India went from um, the eighty-fifth highest mobile uh, data usage country to the number one. Right. Okay. In less than two years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here we are seeing that technological change, but I think we are more of a technological taker, where we kind of follow the normal curve. Where we're not leapfrogging anything, or not trying. I mean, look at our broadband speeds. Like yeah. it's like you know, I get five Mbps at my home if I'm lucky. Right, my okay. father gets 25. So so interestingly, India was so backwards for so long. But they have taken and jumped into technology at a pace which is amazing. Mm. Um, whereas we have been very good for a long time, and I think now our pace is actually not catching up with the rest of the world. We're actually slowing down in our technological usage and uptake of what's right.
0: okay. That's fascinating. So just, just broadly, we're, we're not necessarily breaking it down to India or Australia, or what, what do you see as the, the key... Cultural trends, or mm. consumer, customer, citizen trends that you're observing.
2: Um, I think the now economy. So I want to yeah. press a button and get something now. Yeah, okay. That's a significantly big. I'm sure you see that. So how do you button. see that's
0: been manifested?
2: Um. So I think it's changing people's behavior. Right. So if you let's take Uber. Okay. Now, if you if you put up a normal business case, mm. and say there's a number of x number of taxis in the world. And do you need more taxis? And maybe if you decrease the price by X percent, you may get 20% more taxi usage. That would be a normal business case. What Uber has done is showcase that you can actually increase the market size by three times. And that goes to the heart of how new business models are designed, but that ability to get, uh, I would say, reduce friction. Mm. If you can reduce friction to almost nothing, then people will use it more. It's a, it's it's a fascinating thing about how humans work.
0: Yeah. Uh, so is that driven? Is that the people driving the technology, or is the technology driving the people?
2: For the last few years, I'm seeing the other thing. I'm seeing technology is driving people's yeah, okay. behavior, yeah. um, and in, sometimes in the wrong way. So Facebook is a classic example of technology mm. driving in the wrong wrong way. Of, Can you explain that? Um, so if it's, it's philosophical, so yeah. I don't know if it makes yeah. sense. But if you look at uh, Apple, and Steve Jobs would say a computer is the bicycle of the mind. Yeah. Okay. And he says, our goal is to enable people to be more productive or create more things. And Microsoft and Satyanadella would say the same thing. Mm. If you look at Facebook, Facebook would say, I want more people to spend more time in my website – I want people to behave like this. In fact, if you look at Zuckerberg, he will clearly say that I want to change how people think about X, Y, Z. So there is an inherent philosophical difference where Zuckerberg, with a good heart, wants to change the world and control the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas people like Satya and uh, and and Jobs would want to enable people to achieve the things that they want to achieve without specifying what that they want to achieve is. Yeah, okay. So I think that that that's a very dangerous line in terms of how technology can drive it because um, actually a bunch of young kids in Silicon Valley is not the world. Uh, world is much more multifaceted than mm. a few techies sitting there and writing code. Yes, they can write code and change the world, which is the danger. So you need a much more multifaceted understanding of okay, what behaviours do we even want in society mm. and drive that. So, so of course, technology will drive behaviour, and which is in a lot of things which are good, um, but in a lot of cases, it can be, you know, it can have consequences that nobody has imagined. Yeah,
0: okay. Other than the, the, the now
2: sort of economy yeah, yeah, and, and yeah.
0: people wanting everything now, what, what else do you see as a, the major trends in the way in which people do what they do? Sure.
2: So I think there's a lo, lo, big big question mark on government's ability. People have stopped to believe that governments can achieve big things. Mm. So anywhere in the world, this is not even Australia, it's a a general conversation. Number three, I'm seeing that um, this idea of exponential technology, so that uh, technology actually doubles. Mm. Whether you take AI, whether you take gene sequencing, whether you take robotics. Uh, I don't think so we understand what that means for our world. Mm. I think we have, we don't fully understand that. I think that exponential technology is going to create huge changes in our in our in our business models and mm. our economy and our organizations uh, from education to healthcare to running a business. I don't think we're ready for that and not understanding fully and and then I think there's a larger interest to be good to world to the world mm. so if you took look at any young people, one of the number one things that they want. Is not just to make money; mm-hmm. they want to do good to society. I think that's a generational change that we are seeing. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people in the other every generation who wants to do it, yeah. but I think this current generation and the generation after this and after that just it's just part of what they think. I think mm-hmm. that will have a significant impact on every single organization who want to work with them.
0: Yeah. Okay. Y- you must see lots of research reports or research that you do. Is there anything else that you're sort of seeing as a big big patterns and trends or Things you're seeing uplift, other than technology, which you...
2: Oh, yeah. So the technology, of course, is only one of the things, right? But I think um, over time, the whole climate change conversation has become very... was very negative. I'm starting to see that change a bit, Hmm. where we're going away from scaring people, to saying, okay, what solutions can we find now to solve it? Mm. So I think that's that's a very good shift in in how we could tackle climate change. How the
0: commentators are talking about. Itself. Correct,
2: yeah. correct. So there's 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 slowly changing to like, yes, I think the yes, it's it's, it's not good for us, but mm. saying that we, the world will end in hundred years is actually not helping anyone yeah, to yeah, uh, yeah. think positively about yeah. the solution. So I think that change is coming a bit. I think that's a, that's mm. a very mm. good change in my view that we're able to see a bit more of that. Yeah. Um, I also think that there's a general more understanding that we need to be customer-focused. Yeah, okay. I think there's a huge sense of that coming through. I don't think so fully people understand what that means, but I think there's a general trend. Every single organization I've worked with, whether it's a startup, yeah. not-for-profit, government, business, yeah. that comes in the conversation yeah. on, on day one.
0: So what, what, do you, what do you think they mean, when they, whether they're government or commercial? What, what do you think they mean when they say customer-focused?
2: So so I think, I think, in their own way, I think what people are trying to say is that a law or for a long time, we've been trying to do inside out.
3: Yeah.
2: They're trying to say, "I've got something. who does want, who wants that?" Or, "I've got an idea, or I think I can do this. How do I convince others to do that?" Mm. Uh, which is not a bad thing. I think there's a, there's a role for that. But customer focus would mean that you're actually starting with the needs, wants and aspirations of people and then working backwards. Now, whether your government has understanding citizens, whether you're a startup trying to create something for your customer or a large business trying to understand somebody else. So that is actually significant. And I've sat down with people and say, okay, what does the customer want? Nobody starts there. They actually start with their products. So just asking what does the customer want as a starting conversation is actually very hard. But mm. that's what they are now trying to shift that mindset mm. and culture. And say, you
0: find yourself in groups that you consult of asking them to pause to think about the customer or are they saying they want to be more customer focused
2: and mm. need
0: clarification on it? Or are they very clear about what they actually really want?
2: So I strongly believe when I start working with people, not to get too detailed into trying to understand and define what do you mean by customer focus? If people say they want to be customer focused, that's great. If they don't even explicitly say, you know, I say that's a big trend in the world. You know, that's where we are going. Yeah. Let's do that. But what I try to do is by focusing uh, the design of the work that we do, with starting with the customer. Mm. Automatically, they they understand that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. so it's the design of the process enables them to say, "Wow, I never thought about my customer like that." And 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 so even though they think they want to be customer focused, they actually don't realize what that actually means. By by but by doing it they're wow this is this is what customer understanding means mm. but once they get that it's like hard to take it back right yeah so okay. so you know it's just it's your mind is shifted so it's like yeah, you yeah. can't suddenly see the world differently yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. and and i guess our my sense or our sense is that there's almost a conflict there so there's an, a need to be customer focused but there's also increasing and sometimes hard to reach kpis yep. uh and they could be sales, or they could be improvement, and sometimes they've been more socially responsible KPIs. Yes, do you kind of get, have any sense of how you balance those being customer focused versus uh, KPIs that are about growth or sales or hopefully yeah. some more socially minded KPIs? But
2: yeah, I think the, the KPIs can be all of these, right? Mm. Um, so, so the beauty of this is right that growth is actually a, a, it's connected to understanding customers. Mm. Because you cannot grow if you can't sell more to customers. It's, yeah. of, of course, obvious, mm. but most growth plans don't have that. Yeah, okay. Most growth plans say this product goes to this market for this reason. What it doesn't have is I'm going to spend X amount of time trying to understand this customer, like that, that yeah. which is where yeah. it should be going. So absolutely, I think most of these KPIs can be actually solved. If you start with the customer as a forefront, yeah. I mean, if you look at AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, which is the fastest growing and the biggest cloud computing service in the world, um, the entire growth strategy is doing what customers ask them to do. Mm. That's pretty much their growth strategy. Which at one level sounds very silly, another level is 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 a very you know logical way to run your business. Mm. Uh, but for that, you need to have that openness to ask and society and larger environmental conversations is actually important but you know that also comes from customers society is made of people society mm-hmm. is not uh, uh, you know it's not a, it's not a blob it's made up of people mm-hmm. and and those people are customers mm-hmm. so actually understanding them is super important you know but what is missed jason which i think is is i talk about two kinds of customers customers and non-customers yeah okay what is missed which is what we really try to do is help our clients try to understand their non-customers. Okay. Okay. Who are the people who don't engage with you right now? Mm. Who are the people who don't work with you right now? Yeah. Who are the people who don't buy your products? Yeah. yeah. They are the people we want to understand.
0: Yeah.
2: Not just understanding the people who already work, work yeah, yeah, with yeah, you okay. or buy or engage with you. So, yeah. so that non-customer understanding is where real innovation opportunities, real growth opportunities. Edge cases, where the world is going, all yeah, of that okay. comes from. So, so that non customer space is a, is a beautiful yeah. space.
0: So, if, sort of, if, if A is the start and Z is the, the growth, sort of somewhere up the front of the alphabet is where you're understanding the, the customers and the potential customers in terms of that process of going from A to Z and, and growing your business. It's really come somewhere towards the start.
2: It definitely comes here. towards the start, but also it's. That's that's one way to think about it. But I think the other way to think about this is that uh, it's actually a bunch of circles. Yeah. Okay. okay? And it's a bi- uh, in a, there's a big circle, which is society, in which there are a bunch of circles. Mm-hmm. You're actually only looking at one or two circles and thinking that's your world. Yeah. Okay. And all of your research, all of your work is in the circle and you've never actually looked out of that circle. Yeah. And suddenly, when you look out of the circle, there's a whole bunch of things happening yeah, yeah. around you. So people are doing all of that. They're doing amazing amount of research. They're doing all of that, but they are actually within that circle and not really able to see outside that circle. Yeah. That's what we are trying to do. Yeah. We are trying to kind of help them to see almost beyond their circle yeah. and see who what else is what else are these people trying to do.
0: Almost in the context you were saying before about India, we'll look out at a, at a global context where. Sometimes Australia might be looking more domestically, so it's yeah. almost sort of expanding where more more customers. Yeah, where, exist. exactly. Yeah. So if
2: you if you ask somebody in Adelaide, look, like, you know, where is your growth coming from, or where is your next customer coming from, and who who do you want to understand? Um, some people will say South Australia. Some people will say interstate. Mm. China does come out a lot because you know there's a lot of Chinese conversation here. But if you really think about it, we're still in those circles. Mm. We're not saying, okay, who, who are those people? I just wrote a blog post today. I, I said, Adelaide, let's let's go global from yeah. day one.
3: Yeah.
2: And it's like, if you think about the map of the world, and I wrote that in the blog saying, and you turn it around, actually Australia is the center of the world.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Adelaide is the center of Australia. Yeah. So we need to be able to start saying from day one, where are the people who have the same needs and wants and aspirations that we want to solve for people who are in Adelaide, yeah. and how do we reach them? Is, is, is
0: that the same for like small, small towns across Australia that are small and to be able to thrive only relying on their local population is hard, but if they start to export or, or broaden their horizons, it's much easier? Is, is that right? Yeah.
2: Correct. And I would... I think export is such a hard word, right? Like if you say export, a lot of people's brain goes into a different mindset. My language would be find your tribe. You know, your tribe is not always in the city that you live.
3: Hmm.
2: Okay. Find the tribe and and support the tribe.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
2: And the tribe can be anywhere. Yes, they'll be in your city because you live there. But actually, they don't have to be in your Hmm. city. Um, so if you find your tribe and you serve your tribe, you have a business, mm. wherever they are.
0: Yeah. When you look at technology, um, what are some of the pros and cons? Well, let's sort of focus on some of the cons that you're sort of seeing in terms of trends that are impacting people and the way they live and behave.
2: So we have gone from scarcity to abundance very quickly in technology. So what I mean by that, you've got more technology connected to internet in our homes than 10 years back when we grew, even if we had one computer that was an amazing Mm -hmm. thing on a laptop. Um, We have unlimited video opportunities to watch on YouTube, you know, Mm -hmm. Netflix. Uh, You can go to Google or Wikipedia and, and drown yourself for days. So what suddenly happened is that we've gone from scarcity to abundance and our brains are not used to manage abundance we're just so used to scarcity. Mm. And if you look at human evolution, we've never had food, never enough water, never enough things. So our our bodies used to take more when it's there mm. because mm. we don't know what will come next. But we've gone over all that, right? We have enough food, we enough have water, at least in Australia, uh, for a lot of people. Uh, we have too much of information, too much of video. So we don't know how to manage that abundance and that there is actually a stop, mm. that the abundance is actually is actually a... That's something you have to control. So I don't think so. We have actually got that brain um, change enough, fast enough, happen. This is
0: adults and children and everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's so. My my parents would get up in the morning and open the WhatsApp in their house. They have more WhatsApp groups than I have ever have in my life. Mm. Um, And and if you look at the data from India, uh, fifty-year players are the biggest users of WhatsApp in India. Okay. Um, Facebook is the same uh, my kid watching YouTube and not knowing you know not knowing when to stop because it's just an endless bunch of videos coming in for a five, four year old so I think at all stages I think mm-hmm. we just don't our brains are not designed for it so it's not a good or a bad thing right? I'm not saying YouTube is bad what I'm saying I guess is that as as humans as evolution we have not actually learned how to manage abundance yeah. because we always grew up in scarcity so yeah. we we have to it's, it's a it's a learned habit that we have to have or else it's going to take over all our life
0: is it an epidemic epidemic or is it the new norm
2: i think it's a new norm yeah. it's okay. not an epidemic it's just yeah. what the world will be so the question yeah. then is how do we then uh, how do we then change fast enough uh, because technology is changing faster than human genes can change so how do we change our brain and our genes um mm to manage the changes in the world. Yeah. Because if we don't change that, then what will happen is we all have bad habits. Yeah. Um, and the bad habits are not because of technology, but it's because of we. So we have to change. Yeah. And it's a hard one. I'm, I'm not perfect. So I, yeah. you know, I'm not saying this is easy. But what I'm saying, I guess, is that we cannot just put technology bad. Also, like yeah. we have to think about what is our role and responsibility yeah. in that usage.
0: So individuals have that Absolutely. responsibility about a yeah moderate themselves. Correct. Just like Correct. just like alcohol. Or yeah, exactly. Or like that. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Okay. yeah exactly. Yeah. Rather than saying that it's the job of somebody else to yeah. monitor for us or the yeah. government to come up with a rule or you know those things only work to a limit, right? So yeah. we have to understand that we are living in a world of abundance. And then start designing a life for abundance. That's yeah. it. I if you start there, then hopefully we have a different opportunity.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So, so in the work that you do, what what, what are you sort of seeing? Is again that some of the trends that are um, you're you're watching in terms of um, what they might create for society, the opportunities.
2: So, it's a big one, but one thing is very interesting is that what has proved in the last few years that you can change people's behavior faster than you can imagine to do. Mm. So it's, it's a, a, like, I'll, I'll frame Airbnb in a very different way and you'll understand. Who in their right mind would go to a different country and stay with a stranger that they've never met? And who in their right mind would open up their doors to a stranger that they've never met? Yeah. That's what Airbnb does, mm. right? It's a different way of framing, but Airbnb would say belong in the world and all of that. But we they have been able to build trust within, with strangers and open up their doors and go and walk in so fast it's amazing how much behavior has changed mm. so in some ways for me airbnb is is, a, is the opposite of facebook where it's actually helped people to connect to each other and mm. open up our doors to strangers yeah. in a very good way so so society is actually st- is changing so quickly before we know what that means but what is very important is to understand where some of all of these things will end up. Right. So if you think about abundance, what I said, exponential technology, uh, people's behavior to have the now, Uh, there's a goal to understand that we're doing more than money. So it's society, environment, you know, people, you know, do better for all of that. If you start looking at all of these, all organizations have to be there. Mm. They have to become much more transparent. They have to create great customer experiences because i can compare every organization with the app they create.
3: Mm.
2: I can open one app, close it, open another app, and before you know, you can see the organizational structure in the app. I mean, that's not how consumers see it, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. It's the it's so people can compare things much faster and mm. get information more faster.
0: So does that set expectations? So um Expectations are set by people in terms of how they expect organisations to do with them.
2: Correct. Okay. So expectations have increased tremendously, yeah. and before people used to be okay for different classes of organisations to have different level of performance. Mm. Now it's not okay anymore. They expect the same level of performance from everyone because they see it's an app. Mm. But to create an app, you have to change. If to create a great app. And the great customer experience, you have to create a great business model with a great organizational structure, with a great mindset, with a great culture. Mm. And people don't see that. So that back-end process of all of that that you see in an app, mm. I'm giving mm. an app as like, it could be anything, uh, That that is what people are not seeing. But people don't want to see that. They're consumers, they're citizens, they're people. They just want to compare things and say. So I think that is critical. So next three yeah. to five years, everybody has to be as good as the latest you know, customer experience that other yeah. people are giving. And what is again interesting in that, Jason, is that humans are never ever satisfied. Yeah. Uh, there's a great uh, uh, phrase that Jeff Bezos used other day. He said, "Customers are divinely discontent." Yeah. Um, and so the are they
0: becoming increasingly well, discontent?
2: Well, that's the thing. I think that's the that's that's the hard one to predict. But I think if if you get used to ordering something and you get it in the next hour, then anything which is not in the next hour feels Feels mm. bad mm. that doesn't mean that they're not more divinely discontent it's just that their expectation levels have gone up no they want more mm. so that is what is feels like that you know from a business point of view organization point of view running a business feel like these guys are never happy I can do anything to my customers and they are never happy because mm. they are never kind of fully con- content we are humans like mm-hmm. you know we always want more So I think that's what is going to be happening. I think this is going to be a never-ending race. I don't know how, where it's going to end. Mm. But I think that will be an increasing pressure on organisations to continuously keep up with the increasing levels of expectations. Mm. Um, And that's true for many, I guess, many, many different uh, industries.
0: Mm. But clearly it's not even so different organisational cultures or focus or um, capabilities or access to funding. So are you going to find that like, expectations are going to be increasing, but some organisations are more capable of keeping up than others, and, and some organisations might be left behind, or how do, how do you? Yeah, yeah. You, so that that
2: can happen. Yeah. But I guess most of it is depending on the organisation. Mm. So what we are going through is uh, has happened many times in the history of the world, right? Mm. When electricity has come or when computers came to the field for the first time or this is not a totally new thing i mean this has happened many times before and the organizations which have stayed afloat or grown are the ones who change themselves Hmm. um so in that in that if you look at that as a a historical conversation and say what is the last 150 years of organizational history this is a very common occurrence it's just Hmm. happening a bit maybe faster but if you i don't know i mean I go back to – I'm a big fan of Drucker. So, Drucker talks about this change. If you look at the 1870s to the 1920s, especially in the United States and Europe, we had the advent of electricity. We we found big chemical companies, pharma companies, steel companies, automobile companies, railroad companies, new financial structures, new organizational structures, Mm. uh, new banks, Federal Reserve was created – Like all the things that we are seeing now was created in the span of 30 to 40 years. So imagine the change that happened then. Mm. Um, So I think this is not totally new if you look at it as a contextual change. But what we have to understand is that I think we all have the ability to change. Mm. That's my strongest belief. Uh, My clients go across all kinds of industries. And you know what is common across all of them who can change? It's people. Mm. It is not industry It is not sectors; it is people.
0: So, people drive the change. Correct. Okay. Can you explain that a bit further? Is that people within organisations, or people with customers having particular needs, or leaders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so all of them.
2: All of them. Um, Definitely, customers will change. In some cases, it's the other way. Where I've seen in some organisations, where the leaders are saying, "Look, this is going to happen to us. Mm. We need to be at the forefront, and we need to make this happen." In other cases, it's the fringe. It's these champions at the at the fringe who are seeing that the world is changing, the organisation is not changing, so they're pushing for it. Mm. So you actually see all of them. Um, so in in some cases, in my case, some cases where uh, people come and work with us because their con- customers are changing. Mm. Disability sector is a great example. So the,
0: their customers are changing, so they need to change. They need to change.
2: Again. They know that, but their customers are changing so fast, the market is changing so fast, that the the majority of the reasons they want to work with us is because they want to change their business models fast enough to match that. Challenge. And
0: I wonder with sectors like that that they're wanting to change only because their burning platform has got so bloody hot that they need to change, or and they've left it probably a little bit later than they should. Or whether um, whether they're getting it at the right time. Not not necessarily. I'm not talking necessarily. Um, aged care or, or disability sectors, but what, do you think it's they, they change because they have to change or they change because they're wanting to be innovative?
2: I think there's a bit of both, hmm. but definitely external drivers in some cases are far powerful than hmm. internal drivers. Because sometimes it's very hard to create an internal drive of change as a burning platform yeah. when there's no platform. Yeah. Whereas an external driver, like a policy change of NDIS, for example, can absolutely create a different driver. And to be really frank... That doesn't mean that they've, they were not customer focused before. I
1: mm-hmm. think that's an
2: important thing to understand. People have, uh, people in the disability sector, for example, have helped people f- for years and decades in a nice way. But what we have to also understand is the policy change, which is basically giving money to people on their on their in their pockets, automatically changes behavior. Mm. So the same person behaves differently. But also over time, for all the trends that we talked about, people are changing, <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know. So uh, people with disability is no different from other people mm-hmm. in a lot of mm-hmm. cases. So their expectations of technology or customer experience or the now effect and all of that mm-hmm. is the same. So so they are actually expecting that. So they're actually having the same, you know, push on these organizations. Yeah. What is different, and this is significantly important, is that because of previous policy where you have to write tenders a lot of disability organizations even if they wanted to change they couldn't change
0: okay because so their we're, funding models would correct like, would uh, dictated how they ran their business okay. even though they knew
2: that the customer was changing right, okay. they didn't unless they could get through some changes for majority of the cases um, a few bureaucrats would tell you what the funding for the service models were and they had to do mm-hmm. that so that is very important. So what 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 is unfortunate for the sector has been that we brought in 10, 15 years of change in two years. And that's what is hard to keep up. Right, not okay. not that these people can't keep up, what the customers are asking more. It's just like we have combined all these 15 years of change into two years and said, now, change. Hmm. And that's hard.
0: Yeah. And, and I guess it's just an observation that you've got organizations that need a burning platform or revenue starts going down or it's like a um it's it's a dramatic moment that they need to make a change and their board suddenly often will be pulled in when the board says hey this is not going right we need to actually do something about this um declining revenue or, or whatever it might be so there's this side and there's another side where it's organizations that are intuitively um culturally innovative and and um Transformational, just in the way they're structured. So, and where, where do you kind of, where do you see the balance? Often, in many organizations you um, observe have been transformational or been more um, it's, burning it's deck kind of.
2: A, yeah, very interesting. I think a lot of lot of them are still at the burning deck. Hmm. There's of course a there's a bunch of people that we work with who are uh, transformational, hmm. um, and and I think that's a balance that depends on the context and industry. But I still say 60 to 70% are coming because they feel there's a there's a change that they're not able to manage. Mm. Some of them are coming because I can see that we need to change. And we've got two more years. That's very unusual. But that's amazing to work with people mm. because they're, they're so much ready for the change. They're thinking about it. They know they're not ready, but they want to build up their mm. capability. So that's a very different that that takes a special kind of leader. Mm. Um, so so yeah, we are seeing definitely both, but we're seeing more of the here and the now, and I have a problem.
0: Yeah. So what are the blockages from uh, to being tra- more transformational rather than being burning deck focused? Is it is it cultural? Is it is it f- just lack of funding? Is it is it leadership? Is it
2: so some some sectors have never had much funding right mm. so so if you don't have a if if you're dependent on the government or if you depend on philanthropists for example there is a limited bucket of funding mm. that's that's just the way of the world you can increase that funding but there's a limited. but if you're focused on customers directly then your bucket of funding is just depends on how much you can sell to them so that's mm-hmm. and that's that's a that's and again not,
0: you come back to the point of your customers and also your potential customers is that yep, a, yeah
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you if you if you really go back, I think the people who can drive aspiration, even when there's a burning platform, are the organizations which will actually do well. Mm-hmm. Because if you sell the problem or the challenge as a problem rather than as a want, you know, it's always hard. Mm-hmm. There's only a limited amount of cognitive capability you can work within a problem space. Mm-hmm. You want to work in an aspirational space. You want to work in a space where it's aspirational to create something. So irrespective of where it ends up, every leader has to make it themselves transformational. Mm-hmm. You may start at a different level, even if you start with the burning platform. And that's why I don't like the word burning platform mm-hmm. because you know, you know where it's come from, right? Mm. It's like there's actually an oil platform that's burning. Yeah, you yeah. have to jump.
0: Yeah, yeah that's right.
2: That's, that's, that's like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to go there? So I think the whole idea of a burning platform itself doesn't make sense. What we need to because that's too late. So you can, what you can't do is you can't think aspirational. So I have done work with people on the burning platform, and when you do aspirational conversations, they come up with silly stuff.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They come up with stuff they don't believe they can achieve.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You do the same with people who are not at the burning platform, but know that you know they'll be going to a burning platform, or they have they have nothing like that. They're just aspirational.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a far more different conversation. Mm-hmm. You actually know that this is something that you want to achieve. This is not some... Uh, something that you're just writing up so you can starkly see the difference in the way people approach that aspirational conversation when there is a burning platform Mm. um, where where actually because it's a burning platform they just want to jump they don't want any aspiration Mm. Uh, even Mm. though that's what they say they want but when you do the work with them you realize it's just like it's not helping them
0: so they might not necessarily be transformational cultures but they could be aspirational cultures they just they just got that desire to progress and improve correct and 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 and, do good for for people yeah okay
2: and this is the difference i guess is the aspiration of i want to grow and make more money that's one kind of aspiration i want to make these kind of people better or my product shows up in these places and that becomes better and of course in that process i grow Mm. like that 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 second conversation is where I think the aspiration makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. Whereas if the aspiration is more like, okay, I want to make $10 million more. Well, that's, that's okay. But that doesn't give you a clear understanding and plan. And actually doesn't, there's no communication value in that Mm. to motivate people. You know, Mm -hmm. it could be, it could make sense for a small organization, a bunch of people want to make money. But if you want to grow a large organization or you want to motivate some people, you can't, you can't just tell people, let's make more money. I, I think that doesn't o- on its own make sense unless you have incentivized everybody to focus on making money and then you become an investment bank.
0: So across the whole organization, it's hard to tell, let's say, the um, sort of top-down, bottom-up, so the, the guys at the front line, that it's all about revenue. Mm. You need to have other aspirations yeah.
2: in it. I yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and, and especially at the front line. Yeah, yeah. You have to have aspirations about what it means for customers. Yeah. what it means to make their life better, what it means, how every interaction has to mean for them. That that connection and that feeling mm. has to what matter and drive everything backwards yeah, yeah, okay. rather than top down and saying, we want to make more money, so sell more. Yeah, yeah, okay. so And then you have uh, the financial services stuff that we're seeing from the the challenges that we're seeing here, you know, people are selling stuff to you know, dead people <laughs> yeah. because, because you're now driving down uh, revenue aspiration uh, downwards with KPIs around revenue aspirations, which are not connected to whether the it makes sense for the customer or not.
0: Right, yeah, okay. Because one thing that um, I can observe in different organizations from time to time is at the pointy bit of the organization, it, it's... It is very aspirational, entrepreneurial and innovative, but there's something that gets missed beyond the say the C suite getting down to the, the front line or, or just the general staff.
3: Definitely. They're
0: not they they often didn't sign up to be entrepreneurial or, or whatever and so there's a gap in between. So it so in terms of a culture that is aspirational, is it it's sounds like it's top top down and, and bottom up. Is that right? It's having it so that it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's endorsed by all,
2: all It's endorsed the by all. I actually see that the some of the challenges I'm seeing is middle management.
0: Yeah, okay.
2: I'm seeing that the front line are ready to be entrepreneurial. The top suite is entrepreneurial. is the middle management, which is not changing.
0: Because the front line are dealing with customers. Correct. Is that right? Okay.
2: Correct. So they're always connected yeah. to customers. So if you go and talk to them, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? It's obvious, of course. Yeah. Of course, these are all the problems of the customer. But it doesn't follow through. Yeah. So one of the things that we strongly believe um, is this idea of the six blind men and the elephant, yeah. which is this old fable from and, India. It. So the idea is that um, the king b- brings an elephant to the court and asks six blind men who have never seen an elephant, what is it? So people go and touch the elephant. And somebody who touches the leg says it's a pillar. Mm. Somebody who touches the tail says it's a snake. Mm. Somebody who touches the tusk says it's a spear. Yeah. So they're seeing the parts of the elephant and using their mental models to understand it. That's exactly how strategy happens in the organization. Yeah, okay. Whereas if you bring all the layers of the organization, if you bring your stakeholders inside, if you bring your customers, if you bring all of this together, you see the elephant fully. Right. Okay. okay? And then, and the beauty is this, this is almost an undesigned effect of it, is when you bring all of these people at different layers of the organization, outside the organization, into creating your aspiration and strategy, you actually engage every one of them in the entrepreneurial process. Yeah. Okay. And without knowingly you got everybody actually working towards the aspiration because that's what they created. So not only this approach this blind man and the elephant approach helps to create a better strategy because now you're getting diversity and multidisciplinary and all of those inputs. You actually have a better cultural change management process because you've actually engaged all the people at the, all different layers who now feel part of the strategy. And it become it doesn't become you know, people at the top knowing what to do, which yeah. actually, frankly, okay. they can't. Yeah, okay. The world is changing too fast. There's too many changes for only a few people to know what is that, what that is. I think that's the danger too.
0: Do you find your advising organizations um, that that's what's required, that more holistic um, involvement of leadership? frontline customers, middle managers in those decision-making is required? Is that, is that what you find a lot of the education you'll, you'll provide?
2: Yeah, so one, absolutely. So when people come to us and say we want a better strategy or we want to change our business model, my focus is always on the approach hmm. because nobody can guarantee a better strategy or we can't guarantee a better business model. But what we can do is actually change the way we do something and that, by that, you get it. So we say, okay, you want a better strategy? Okay, these are the principles of a better strategy. Mm. First, you have to co-create. Two, you have to bring people from different layers. Three, you have to iterate. Four, you have to have assumptions built in. Five, you can't believe that what you write today will be true in five years. So all of these things. Um, so people don't intuitively come to ask that, but when they come for a better strategy or a better business model, or I want to understand my customers better, any any question, um, the way we design our process and approach actually has those elements yeah um and as they're working through they realize actually that's such an amazing process we actually got more out of it because now we've involved more people and actually now we have more people supporting our strategy because they have been part of it so those are almost the elements that we don't sell too much at the start but as you do the work you realize that's amazing that's that's those are value that i Mm -hmm. have and actually my strategy is also better
0: yeah that's great So globally, or it could be globally or locally, I don't really mind, um, two organizations, one big, one small, who are doing it well as an aspirational organization. Anyone? Yeah, anyone. Just name of an organization.
2: Uh, There's a bunch of ones that I I like, I guess. Um, I think I like the audacity of Musk um, in the sense that how do we solve problems uh, from first principles and and not take no for an answer mm-hmm. and solve it um, in a actually in a way that is actually meaningful? So for me, the way Musk is running uh, Tesla, for example, is is supremely interesting because at the end of the day, he wants every uh, every car to be electric car,
3: mm.
2: and so it actually doesn't matter what Tesla does. I think he's already on his path to succeed because in 2030, 2035, a lot of countries are already saying they, they want their they uh, their, their only to sell electric cars. So it's, it's already happening. So mm. I think that the trajectory is on its way. It doesn't matter what happens to Tesla, he's won. So that's an interesting angle, but not everybody can be Musk. So yeah, yeah. That's
0: what, what about the smaller side?
2: So the smaller side, I think it's it's organizations like um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a young uh, doctor I met in India you know she's 26 years old she she did her did a uh, did her MBBS, become a doctor yep. and she grew up in a household uh, where she teacher it's all education and what she realized was that I can be one I can be a doctor all my life and help one-to-one or I can actually help a lot of kids hmm. to ha- be healthy so now she's on a pathway to create um, a, a program in schools to help kids to get better and healthy and it's all part of the curriculum. So after every okay. every class they have to get up have water or in one class they do some exercise in another class they do a breathing exercise. What is her name? Sorry. You... Um. So her name is Meghna. So Meghna runs a company called Care and Grow and okay. the whole idea is to kind of change how how schools and children yeah. and start uh, their uh, start their health From that age, yeah, okay, and and then influence them over a six-month period uh, through the schooling process, and then from there, I think that's it's been amazing her vision about how she wants to do that and how she's thinking about it, and how at 26 years, her ambition and what she wants to do has been phenomenal. Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and clearly, clearly, she could see a, a a problem or an unmet. Uh, need that needed to be fixed. Is that, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Correct, okay. correct. So,
2: so if you listen to her, right, she says, um, "We need to, we need to, we health problems are have to be solved before they come. Yeah, so it yeah, has yeah. to be preventative. And where is the biggest lever of change? Is to change kids." While they are learning new habits yeah, yeah, yeah. and then where can we find the most number of kids and change them at the same time It's a school so you yeah, know yeah. you go through this thinking process and then realize that she can change hundreds of millions of kids yeah, through yeah. this process um, so she was picked up by the Microsoft accelerator in India yeah. and they didn't believe what she was doing which is like a structured approach to understanding a baseline and then change that yeah okay. now it's they've helped her to patent it in like I think hundred countries yeah okay. Because she's she's really on something there in terms of how she wants to kind of change this. And it's, yeah, it's been phenomenal just yeah. seeing and how and she. What's, wants.
0: Her, what's her name again? Sorry? Uh, Meghna. Dr. Meghna. Dr. Meghna, yeah. Yeah, okay. So obviously, Dr. Meghna and, and um, Elon Musk, they're both looking to, I guess, aspirationally looking to, to solve fundamental problems. Problems. Wrongs that need to be made right. Yeah,
2: okay. But if you look at their stories and if you look at and you talk to them and you realize that they actually don't want to run a charity yeah begner doesn't want to run a charity she wants to run a social enterprise she yeah, okay. wants to run a business that's, she wants to be sustainable business yeah. she wants to charge the schools per kid it's a subscription model yeah. it's 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 got apps it's got tablets it's got people who can go and do this so it's it's actually a real business it's not just trying to do good to society yeah,
3: okay.
2: um and musk would be the same like he's not there to just like run a charity he's there to make money too. So the beauty of these two for me is this, this, this new world of where you're not trying to just make money or just trying to do good. You're trying to do both.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And actually, this idea of doing good has actually more business opportunity than you can imagine. Then if you just take a normal approach of where do I enter this business market and make money? If you actually want to help people and change their life, there's more money to be made in that yeah. than ever. Yeah,
0: excellent. And a completely, sort of, no, um, good transition into onto this one. Uh, should we fear the robots?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm no, I'm no futuristic uh, person, right? I don't know what that means. But what I do know is, as a, as an individual, is I don't want to do stuff which is dangerous to me, or boring to me, or things where my intellect is not being used. Mm. And I'm sure that's true to a lot of people. Um so why why not let the robots do that mm. let them do all the so technology bend. will
0: take away those, those yeah i mean it's, it's other a, i mean
2: yeah, yeah we should, i mean I, in australia i'm sure we why do you want to wash your own clothes the washing machine robot is doing it mm-hmm. we've always done it you know we don't have people writing letters for us you yeah. know so so this this idea that robots are dangerous or new is, is i think it's a, it's a, it's kind of a wrong approach the danger though don't get me wrong The danger, though, is as a society, which comes down to how we are educating our children, how we are organizing our own organizations, the incentives we are giving for what kind of, uh, how people go into new uh, work, that's where the problem is. The problem is not with robots. The problem is that the exponential technology and how fast the robots are going to come, we are not really ready to reimagine our own future. That's that's why we are worried. I think we are not worried because the robots are coming. We worried that we're not ready to change as fast when the robots are
0: coming. We're assuming it will stay the same. Is that? Yeah,
2: yeah we are okay. assuming that we not, will not, we'll not have new jobs, or we are assuming that we can't change fast enough, or we are assuming that we're not ready to tackle the challenge. Rather yeah. than the robots are a problem, I guess. Yeah. 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 Do you have children? Yep.
0: Two kids, two daughters. So, how do you teach your children or train your children to be ready for the the future? And how is that different to when you were a child?
2: Yeah, it's, yeah. So one of the things I, I so my I've got nine and four. So the four-year-old, of course, doesn't understand anything. <laughs> um, she's having fun. I think she's in the right place. She doesn't have to worry about anything. She's learning all the right things. The nine-year-old is very interesting. So part of what I'm trying to do for her is, okay, she said I, she wants to be a teacher, for example. I said, that's great, but do you, what do you really want to do? Oh, I love educating. Like, that's what you want so that's so. I'm trying to get them to think about the actual meaning of what mm. they're trying to do.
0: Does that mean she's got a good teacher?
2: She's she's now has got a good, good teacher. Yeah. Um, but I think the idea that she wants to educate makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Now that is something I want her to focus on rather than be. A teacher is a one way to educate, right? To be so an
0: educator rather than a teacher.
2: Teacher. Okay. So you can do it in money multiple ways. Yeah. The second thing I'm doing is uh, I've got a bunch of the, uh, girls who come every every weekend to my home, hmm. and I teach them coding. Yeah, okay. Okay, now I'm not a coder, but there's a whole bunch of software tools and online stuff that is good enough for me to yeah, quickly okay. learn and teach them. And I'm trying to give them a sense of what's possible. You know, how do you think about this new world? And I'm not saying they will be coders. I don't even want them to be. That, that That's up to them. But
0: So teaching your children
3: yeah. how to code? Yeah, okay. yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah, because the schools are not doing it.
0: Yeah.
2: Schools are not doing enough. Like the challenges that the world are changing, but we're not getting kids to be... So the thing we need in the future, right, creativity... You know, ability to understand machines, ability to, you know, code in the stuff, ability to able to change a career multiple times. So these are the things that needs to happen. So part of this is helping them that. The other angle will be entrepreneurship. And that's a very broad, broad uh, word. And I'm not, I don't mean startups here. I mean the ability to look at the world as opportunities and try different things and solve those problems in an innovative way and be ready for change all the time. So that entrepreneurship capability is another one that I'm keen to build on to my kids, but in general, all kids. Uh, actually, we're going to launch an entrepreneurship program soon, so I'll be keen to talk about that in the future. But the, the idea that kids need to be entrepreneurial, I think, is going to be super important. Not to start a startup, yeah. but just, just in terms of where the world is going, they all need to be entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah. Can, can you explain that a bit more?
2: Sure. Um, so there's this, there's this idea that uh, Drucker suggested in the 1970s and 80s called the Entrepreneurial Society. And he believes that innovation and change will be a critical part of our life. And we, what we want, he said, is we don't want people to be, just organizations to be entrepreneurs. We want an entrepreneurial society. And the idea behind the thinking, right, is that we are constantly changing. And all the stuff we talked till now, Jason, We're also talking, in some sense, there's an underlying current that this is hard for us Mm -hmm. as people. But if you're actually an entrepreneurial mindset, this is not hard. This is fun. This is great. This is like amazing. The world is changing. We have new opportunities. We need to tackle them. We need to be innovative. This is just what an entrepreneur does. So all the stuff that we're talking, if you spin it around, is actually an opportunity. But for that, it requires the right entrepreneurial capability and what that what does means is that from day 1 we need to be able to take chances try different things de-risk an idea try different ideas test it in the world understand marketing you know do prototyping all of these capabilities that an entrepreneur does those are the capabilities that we want in kids mm. and if you have those capabilities then it doesn't matter which career path you go if robots are coming you are actually ready to take and take that opportunity to change yourself Mm-hmm. And be ready for the world. So that's so that entrepreneurship yeah, yeah, yeah. is what I believe is going to be the significant yeah. underlying current.
0: Yeah, yeah, so prepared for uncertainty and the likes moving. So forward. seeing
2: change and innovation as part of daily life. Yeah. Okay. Not even prepared. I think it, so prepared means that we believe that it may come or not come.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Just seeing that as part of our life and yeah. be able to kind of just go for it. Yeah, not okay. not have any issues of not doing it like this is life so i think that's where we want people to end up with rather yeah. than being worried about uncertainty um we have this uh acronym i don't know if you've ever heard it. it's called vuca uh, v-u-c-a mm. volatile uncertain complex okay. ambiguous yeah. that's where the world is yeah okay. we just want people to live in a vuca world happily yeah. i think if you can do that then we don't have to worry about uncertainty is high or low that's what the world is
0: yeah, okay um resources, books, websites that you can think of that are, are worth people check, checking out?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on what they want to do, but... Yeah. Any um,
0: recommendations? Are there books that you gift or recommend to yes. people wanting to know more about being more customer-focused or so, aspirational?
2: Yeah, the, so one of the simplest books I can suggest to anyone is a, is a book uh, called the, the Five Most Important Questions by Peter Drucker. Um, so there's a five questions uh, that you would need to read to understand to create a strategy. It's a bit of, uh, you know, not for profit focused, but doesn't matter. It's for everyone. It's the most amazing strategy book you can read. Um, I would I would pick up uh, any decent book by Roger Martin around okay. strategy and okay. design. Um, and then there's a bunch of books around design that you can just start picking and developing design capability. Uh, uh, I think everybody should be looking at reading um, uh, the book uh, "Exponential Organizations" because that's really the crux of where the world is changing and how it's going. So that would be a good one to uh, understand. Um, the maybe the other book that I would I would suggest is um, uh, is, is is more around things like uh, not. Uh, making money I guess you know that those are stuff that you can read but I think we need to read things which are more fundamental to who we are as humans so you know picking books which are historical uh, which helps you understand how the world has changed whether it's a biography of somebody Mm -hmm. that you like or how a country has changed so no matter
0: how much things change they still stay the same yeah it's it's, it's just
2: understanding the context in which has come so for me a lot of history has actually helped me understand Where things are rather than trying to read futuristic books, if it makes sense. Yeah, it does. So, so just going back 100 years and reading the past is more helpful. Um, So, I would pick uh, some of the books that really helped me uh, when I was young was uh, uh, Made in Japan by Akio Morito, Mm. who actually was a keeper guy behind Sony. Um, And how even a word like Sony comes, like things like that is good to understand, I think, historical um yeah so if you if, if i would i would go backwards rather than front you know most of my books i would suggest would be you know in the past uh you know which are well, old and i think they make a lot of sense i also would urge people to write then read yeah i think writing is a significantly useful aspect of reading so the more you can write as as you're reading yeah. you learn more
0: can you explain that a bit more
2: so um i started writing a blog called worldisgreen.com in 2003 yeah. Um, and the idea was to capture my learnings as I was, you know, doing it. That blog is no more, but uh, but what it helped me was when I was trying to explain what I thought, it crystallized in my head what I was thinking and what I was not thinking. So actually, writing made me um, a better thinker hmm. than yeah. Just, I, I agree. Yeah. Just reading, if it makes sense. Yeah. So so uh, even if you write on your phone on a notes app that nobody else reads mm-hmm. right it doesn't have to be about a blog i guess just writing on its own is useful so if you can write every day if you can write every two days just write mm. i think that helps you to uh, understand the world conceptualize that, your thoughts yes and, okay. because it, you have to make sense of the world in your own way mm-hmm. so for me drucker i read 21 books of drucker and most some of the books i've read three four times yeah. but that made sense to me so i would suggest drucker but it may not sense make sense to you But for me, it's actually finding something, someone and going deep and understanding all the layers of that conversation Mm -hmm. um, rather than uh, trying to go from one book to the next book, to the next book, to the next book. Um, So in that context, for example... uh, Jared Diamond, Gun, Germs, and Steel is an amazing book about the history of the world from a different angle mm-hmm. and how some societies have succeeded and others have failed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's, that's, so it's things like that. And, but, but you have to write again and understand how that fits in into you know, uh, how this shows up in this world. Um, and I, I'll give you an example. So when people come and talk to me about strategy, one of the things that I talk about is what do you stop doing? okay
0: sorry what what do, what you, do you stop doing
2: okay yeah. not what do you want to do yeah okay okay and in there are three four layers of that that we can go so Drucker talks about what do you stop doing and what do you do so not just new things because you have to stop doing something to create new there is the idea of Joseph Schumpeter Schumpeter was an economist who who coined the phrase creative destruction which you may have heard mm. and he talks about that an economy is a is an act of creative destruction new new businesses come and old businesses die and then you add another layer on top which is this um, uh, hindu philosophy of the three main gods uh, so Vishnu Brahma Maheshwara so Brahma is the creator Vishnu is the preserver and Shiva is the destroyer so that's again completes the circle so when i was writing this blog post i made this connection I never made this connection in my head till I wrote. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing all these disparate pieces of information I had in my head, I connected the thread and I saw that at the cosmic level and the economy level at the organization level, at the individual level, we have to follow that cycle of creating, maintaining and destroying. And actually writers have written and people have thought about it in multiple angles, but they're all the same at all those layers. But that's, idea for me came when I was writing a blog post. Right. I never made sense of those different parts till I started writing the blog post. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay.
0: So it's about, very much about diving deeper into a topic, is it?
2: Is yeah, that- so so if I pick a topic, I would rather look at it from multiple angles yeah. and read multiple authors, read multiple articles, yeah. And and keeping in mind that nobody's perfect and trying to get that in your head. So rather than trying to uh, go from one idea to another, you would want to say, okay, if this is this person's viewpoint, what is the other person's viewpoint? Mm. And then uh, find a word or a phrase or a statement from the book that you like and say, actually, why did this author get influenced by that author? And then you go and read that author. And then from there you start to... So you start to kind of see the mental model of how people's ideas are formed mm-hmm. and, and, and that connection and mental model stuff is, is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, what is this guy? Uh, uh, you, uh, the chair, vice chairman of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, oh, uh, um, Charlie Munger. Yeah. yeah. So Munger has this uh, amazing statement called lattice work of mental models. And he believes that there are about 80 mental models that drive majority of the world. And what does he mean? He means, do you understand uh, uh, you know, compound interest? In, in say in in finance or do you understand few psychological cognitive biases that people have or do you understand the principles of thermodynamics in physics or do you understand a few principles of how ecology and ecosystems work in biology so you're starting to kind of now these are pretty heavy mental models but they're not like too hard for a human to understand and you bring all of them together you start to have this uh, lattice work in your head where you start connecting things that you would normally not connect but you have to kind of take the thread and connect it yourself in your head. And some people have done it. So you just follow their pathway, but you have to go deep. You have to go across and you have to then make those connections in your head. Then you have these interesting mental models. So when you start going and looking and at a problem, you're not b- pulling it from only one piece of, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, thinking where it's a mathematical thinking or engineering thinking or a a social sciences or a psychology, you're actually trying to pick from multiple angles mm-hmm. as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the world and the problem looks very different. Mm-hmm. Not because you're clever, and this is super important, is because you've got multiple mental models to pull from.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: you so you start to see the world in a better way because the world is actually science, maths, English, yeah. psychology, all of that together the world is we just made those differences to yeah. help us the world is all of that so so if you see that from that point and the six blind men and the elephant again mm. that mental model stuff is important so that 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 kind of depth and connection maybe is is how i would approach yeah. Uh, understanding yeah.
0: yeah so using those mental models seems to allow almost come back to allow you to understand customers potential customers is there a similar kind of Correct. Way in which is yeah,
2: yeah i think that you have nailed it so yeah. it helps you to understand people's behavior yeah it helps you to understand technology changes yeah. It helps you to understand uh, that all of that to actually why is one organization making money and why is one not and why you can bring a different business model from a different industry to this all of those things which feel far fetched mm-hmm are actually not that far-fetched once you kind of make those mental model connections because mm. it's the same stuff that's creating all of them yeah. and you yes. can start to see that connections in a much more deeper way yeah mm.
0: that's that's lovely and even sort of going back to you as a boy and you now that that reading is still a really big part of your life and <laughs> that curiosity and exploring and understanding the world and that, that that's 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 beautiful thank you so much for your time so what, how can people find you on social blog LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever you, your preferences are, what, what's sure. the way to find yeah. it?
2: Thanks, Jason, for the, for the opportunity. I think it's been a fascinating conversation. So your questions, of course, help me to uh, share what I'm thinking. So thanks a lot. Um, I think the, the best way to find me is uh, I'm on Twitter, Suhit at Suhit Anantala. Uh, I write a blog called humanomics.co. Uh, LinkedIn, Suhit Anantla or humanomics, you'll find me. Uh, but yeah, those are the three please us okay
0: yep. we'll provide some links yep. with, with that so thank you very much and yep. all the
2: best yeah thank thanks you. Jason.
0: thanks again suet and thank you for listening today to close the show we're joined by square holes team member jordan hey jordan happy birthday and how are you going
1: thank you jason really good congratulations on the exciting podcast and the initiative of getting it started I was lucky enough to have Sue as a lecturer for my market research topic at university and now I'm also lucky enough to be here at Holtz. Cool. Thanks Jordan. So um if you kind of had a think about what 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 do you kind of
0: see as like a a big big trend moving forward whether it's like a, through your work or or whether it's just sort of things with your your, your friends or your family what do you sort of see as a, a next big thing?
1: Um I'm, I'm always on social media and a yeah. lot of my friends are too so no, I think the power of social media and advertising, especially with influence advertising, is something yeah. that really excites me.
0: So tell me a bit about influencer advertising.
1: Influencer advertising yeah. is using social media influencers, people yeah. with a, a big following base, to uh, promote your products or services.
0: Yeah. So where do you sort of, do, do you think that people trust Influencer marketing, like where, where where does it work well and where does it do really not work not so well?
1: I think it works really well for girls on Instagram, so that younger twelve yeah. to twenty two market yeah. who are on there all the time, who are really highly engaged, and I guess are you know full full for some of the advertising easier than others who probably have a bit higher barrier to purchasing online. Yeah. I think it works with them with uh, everything you see with Kayla Itzenis and then Frank Bod and. If you've seen it on Instagram, yeah. I'm sure. So, what's it? What's it, well,
0: if you had a th- you thought about one example where they're just kicking it, they're just doing it so well. They've got that influencer marketing going, and like, as a as a brand, you sort of look at it and go, they're doing it like really well. They've kind of captured it. They kind of it's helped to build their brand up. Can you think of one?
1: That- I think Riderware, which yeah. is an Adelaide brand, yeah. is doing exceptionally well at that, yeah. and uh, they employ an influencer manager. Yeah. okay. Um, Natalie Kutsikis, who does a really good job. Yeah. So. Okay.
0: So they'll sort of almost have sort of got an influencer strategy rather than so, so mm, it's, rather than being about a commissioning a person who they think will be able to yeah, talk it's, about their product as having somebody that's it's more of a strategy around almost like having a um, a digital strategy, having an influencer strategy. Correct. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Do you see any brands maybe kind of uh, yeah anywhere really kind of you you cringe when you see to see them doing it or are they kind of like there's the not not do's?
1: yeah definitely um you 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 if you've been on instagram or some of the other platforms too especially youtube you'll see youtube stars these days just promoting any product yeah. before and after their videos and it the the big no-no is if that influencer wouldn't use the product or they're not suited towards it they shouldn't be yeah, promoting yeah, it's it it's
0: interesting and yeah, we did some focus groups recently and we had some young people and it was quite funny. It was just about a completely unrelated topic. We got onto digital and there was a young, cool, I'd say he'd be about 15, 14, 15, and he was a skatey and he got paid like money to be an influence on Instagram. I think he was – or it might have been Instagram and Snapchat maybe, but he was um, – yeah, he was kind of on those platforms largely because of an influence. And then somebody else said, oh, I'm always a little bit kind of guarded when my friends are referring a piece of clothing or not. And it was just an interesting conversation around how much it's infiltrated those those kind of spaces and almost that kind of almost starting to think, yeah, the, the, the trust, the way in which a brand does it to build up trust rather than affecting that trust is is obviously pretty important. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks, right, thank Jordan. You. Happy birthday and... Have a
1: big night. All right.
0: Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the show and are interested in not missing an upcoming interview, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. For more information on each episode, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. While you're there, you can subscribe to our same time every Friday email and blog. Recent weeks have been as diverse as uh, collaborative insight and the need for... Teams to work with market research and other forms of evidence based insight through to how to measure the impact of major events. By Professor Barry Bergen of Bond University, talking about measuring the jobs creation and other economic impact of events, as well as cultural impact on just. The makeup of a society, the, the psychology of a society, just the benefits of sports events, arts events, and otherwise. Another couple uh, by myself. Please stop drinking the Kool Aid. Looking at confirmation bias and how different sectors tend to look for information, experts, and ad- advice that confirms that they are the best, that they are right rather than seeking independent evidence that will likely question their hypothesis but give them a more realistic perspective on the reality. Uh, another one, being both selfish and selfless, the importance of whether it's in an entrepreneur's loved ones and family or within a team Culture, a strong team culture, uh, finding psychological alignment and realizing that success doesn't come from the needs of one individual. It comes from lining up the needs, psychological needs, be them safety through to more aspirational needs of individuals within it. And likely those needs are going to be quite distinctive. So a whole lot there. We've been writing the blog in a very dedicated way since the start of 2017, and it's been a really nice habitual uh, process that we've gone through, a bit like Suet was talking about, that idea of writing is as important, if not more important, than reading. And we've certainly found the process uh, stimulating and a great way to conceptualise our views and even just um yeah just in the creative process so please have a look and if you can subscribe thank you you can also follow me via at jason dunstone on twitter thank you for listening and have a great day